Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 14. Some quotes relevant to Chapter 14 from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Mad Hatter, would you like a little more tea? Alice, well, I haven't had any yet, so I can't very well take more. March Hare, ah, you mean you can't very well take less? Mad Hatter, yes, you can always take more of nothing. Danby Whisk to Ingleby Cross, nine and a half miles, five hours walking. The bright morning sunshine was alive with birdsong, and somewhere far off a dog barked. I'd awoken early and made for the shower, but there was no chance. The paying guest shower was still defunct, and the landlord's ensuite was in no man's land, behind his bedroom door, and that was shut tight. Several medical articles claim that many elderly couples engage in a touch of hanky-panky during their Sunday lie-in. It was little surprise, therefore, that I was a hint reluctant to barge into their bedroom and disturb our host and hostess, even though they may have been doing nothing more indelicate than innocently fingering a colour supplement. Rightly or wrongly, pommies have earned an unfortunate reputation for two specific traits they persist in importing into Australia. They never stop whinging, and they sympathise with Elizabeth I's belief that too much bathing can sap a person's strength. As a manxman down under, I found little to bleat about other than the whiplash sunshine and the debilitating humidity during a Queensland summer. As for bathing, I've discovered only one better way to start the day than under a hot shower, and in Danby Whisk, that pleasure was also out of the question. After what felt like an eternity, I heard movement from the bedroom at the end of the corridor. I dashed to the shower, hoping to beat the queue I suspected would form any moment. In the passageway, I ran into the landlord coming towards me. His small head protruded from the upturned collar of an oversized toweling dressing gown. On seeing me, he shrunk backwards, wearing a horrified expression as though expecting to be mugged. "'You're not having another shower, are you?' he protested in dismay. "'You had one only yesterday!' "'Don't think I'm the only one who needs to freshen up,' I informed him. All your guests are Australian, and they're a breed of dyed-in-the-wool ablutionists. Danby Whisk's most pleasing trait was a fervent addiction to the surreal. With only the smallest injection of the absurd, breakfast was elevated from the comfortable mundane to an enchanted cabaret of polished eccentricity. A full English breakfast was unavailable. It was anything but the brash, Yes, madam, with everything, but hold the black pudding. In Danby Whisk, we were offered a choice of what to have with our egg and bacon. Fried tomato, or sausage, or mushroom. Our delicate landlord sang out as he waltzed around the table as nimbly as Fred Astaire. The Danby Whisk approach to breakfast tailored the portions more towards the dietary needs of a catwalk supermodel than the energy needs of ravenous ramblers. A diner with a keen eye for detail may describe the servings as closely costed and finely measured. All on offer was stated in the singular. There was no S attached to a Danby Whisk egg. The landlord wasn't the retiring type. 
In a marvellous display of Mad Hatter mimicry, he tottered round the table, cradling an enormous china teapot, from which he poured half a cup for each of the paying guests. The whole performance was executed with such flamboyant ceremony that one might be forgiven for thinking he was dispensing the elixir of life, and not a splash of hot, thin tea. I greatly enjoyed the stopover, but was pleased to be on the road again, even though the bright sun in the clear blue sky made it too hot for comfortable walking. Beyond the hawthorn hedges and cultivated fields lay the distant Cleveland hills, where the day's trek would end. Outside Danby Whisk is the peaceful knoll known as Oak Tree Hill, where, in the year 1138, the Scots and English fought one of their many battles. It's a place of soft bird song and butterflies' wings. It was hard to imagine we were walking in the killing fields, where thousands had been butchered and left to rot. Later we chanced upon Hugh, who was still grappling with the mysteries of map and compass. It would be misleading to say he looked dejected, highly focused and determined would be closer to the mark, as though by magic he'd acquired a new and novel persona. Unlike the Pied Piper of Hamelin, who enchanted children with his magic flute, Hugh of Gibsland had ensnared a company of followers with his certainty and self-assurance. Needless to say, the troop was heading in the wrong direction, and became ensnared in a clump of tall reeds and briars on an overgrown river bank. It was hard to know to what degree Hugh's navigational skills had improved during the course of the journey. His walkabouts were a thing of endless fascination, as they seemed to be entirely counterintuitive, more Don Quixote than Jacob wrestling an angel until daybreak. For all its oddity, Danby Wisp will remain one of the most intriguing places in which we stayed. It transpired I was the only one to chance my hand beneath the circular shower that morning. All the true blues had foregone the ordeal of the beam-me-up Scotty douche. The others had settled for the sink in the paying guest's bathroom, where they had used a flannel to do unspeakable things to themselves whilst balanced on one leg. During the day, Peter and I considered the possibility that the paying guest's shower had been out of action for years. It was a perfectly simple ploy to rein in the lodger's extravagant desire for hot showers. Now there was a landlord full of social forethought. Not only did he control a household's carbon footprint by reducing his electricity consumption, but his shrewd approach to catering also tackled the international problem of obesity by ensuring that guests left the breakfast table with the comfortable feeling that they hadn't been overindulged with fatty food. During the day's trekking, we encountered two obstacles that diverted thought from the stillness and unhurried simplicity of the open countryside and into the realities of modern life. At Long Lane, a rural road used since Roman times, our way was barred by a major East Coast railway. In the course of the journey, we'd already crossed several railway tracks. Our way had been made safe and easy using bridge or tunnel. On this occasion, with neither bridge nor tunnel available, we were obliged to cross the busy rail artery on foot. After a prolonged look right, look left, look right again, and an endorsing nod to each other that all was clear, we dashed headlong for the far side of the track. We scrambled across the bedding gravel and the open rails on a section of track along which express trains zoomed by at a tremendous speed. 
No doubt an aged hayseed leaning on a five-bar gate would have chortled to himself at the sight of two late middle-aged townies in full flight. However, my mind was on a different plane. I was trying to avoid being thinly sliced by a speeding intercity express and left as tenderized lunch for the local crows. Ingleby Cross was almost in sight when we were confronted by the horrific A-19 motorway. Neither an overpass bridge nor a tunnelled culvert had been built to separate the hurtling traffic from those on foot. The lunatic speed and deafening clatter of the juggernauts was overwhelming. Add to that the appalling stench of tortured rubber, scorched oil and unburnt diesel fumes, and it was easy to visualise the fate awaiting those rejected by St. Peter at the pearly gates. We had to cross six lanes of thundering extermination on foot. Through a momentary break in the northbound traffic, we made a lumbering dash to the precarious sanctuary of the centre strip. After some time, we repeated the suicidal sprint and crossed the southbound lane. Peter and I were just two of the 10,000 hikers that run the gauntlet of the A-19 each year. It was just as well that Dewdrop hadn't ventured this far along the trail. Had he done so, he may well have finished up squashed flat as a discarded lager can whilst making a doddering dash through the traffic on his tin legs. Distance, like time, is a marvellous cure-all. Soon we'd left the wearisome din behind, and were wending our way along a quiet and leafy lane to Ingleby Cross, and an oasis, the Bluebell Inn. I thought the pub's name referred to a bank of bluebells that flower in May, but I was wrong. For some obscure reason, the pub was named after a blue-painted bell-shaped plywood cutout that hung over the entrance. Ingleby Cross embraced hospitality with the same enthusiasm that Danby Whisk applied in elevating moderation to an art form. The Bluebell Inn had a welcoming mat in clear view. The bar was filled with a convivial chit-chat from a mixed bag of locals and rosy-cheeked walkers savouring the seductive pleasure of fermented malt and hops. Peter and I scored bar stools from where we could survey the entire saloon. Two pints of bitter, please, Peter ordered. Well, no, replied the landlord with genuine interest. Which bitter did you have in mind? Which bitter would you recommend? I prompted. That depends, said the landlord, keen to reveal his area of expertise. After some discussion, we settled on cask, which the connoisseur regarded as mere cooking beer. The landlord pulled the pints with the action of a publican in love with his trade and jealously proud of his reputation for serving top-quality beer. The deep amber ale seethed with a turbulent inner life that demanded respect and patience. With smiles of appreciation, we waited with due deference until the beer settled, forming a fine creamy head before savouring its amber delights. The rich aroma of toasted malt and bitter hops belied the subtle flavours of the beer. The first swallow only hinted at the pleasures secreted in the body of the ale. Its essence was pure richness, with a refreshing finish. My eyes closed and shoulders slumped in homage and to better focus my senses on taste alone. I gasped with utter delight at sampling one of the best bitters I'd ever been lucky enough to come across. When Colleen arrived, she was a hint tetchy. She'd been less fortunate than Peter and me when crossing the A-19. After missing the turning, she'd been trapped on the motorway, taking her miles in the wrong direction. 
Some familiar headgear floated past the bar window, signalling the arrival of the elderly American couple. Their guidebook couldn't have been so bad. After all, they'd found their way to the Blue Bell Inn. Moments later, a towering, loose-limbed man arrived with his beautiful blonde wife. They were also American, and joined their countrymen. The four sat together, and charmed all about with their courteous behaviour and soft, lilting drawl. The Bluebell Inn is a picture-book country inn. It's a pretty pub, decorated with hanging baskets, overflowing with flowers, and fronted by a small green. The guest accommodation is out of sight and a recent addition. The rooms are so small, they're like the crew's quarters on a coastal prawn trawler, observed Peter. I've got something special to have with afternoon tea, Colleen teased. After sprucing up, we gathered round a picnic table where Colleen slowly and carefully unpacked two parcels. Quite simply, she'd captured the flavour of the district in a unique local delicacy. In the best Yorkshire tradition, we drank tea and ate chunks of fruitcake topped off with slabs of cheese. Wensleydale, of course. When there wasn't a skerrig left, it was clear that even the cheese-loving French could learn a thing or two about fromage and its condiments by adopting this quaint Yorkshire treat. That evening, the Blue Bellion was alive with diners and tosspots. Over drinks, we were reminded of the strengths and occasional foolhardiness of Australian optimism. We chatted to a couple from Brisbane. The man's leg was heavily strapped as he had only just undergone knee surgery. What a bastard, he moaned. My knee's still ratchet. Two weeks after the operation. We skirted round the Lake District to avoid the hills, but his knee's still no bloody good, his wife continued. It looks like we're going to have to pull the plug on the walk. It's a lot further than it looks on the map, he observed. We thought it'd be a doddle, even with a crook knee. We mumbled our commiserations, fully aware of how disappointed they must feel. After all, it was only a couple of weeks since we'd harboured doubts about our own ability to complete the trail. Now, onwards from Ingleby Cross, only bad luck or an accident could stop us reaching Robin Hood's Bay. The Bluebell Inn had an exceptionally good menu, which included rabbit pie. I was tempted, but after seeing hundreds of dead and dying rabbits only a few days before, I left the pie for others. A fine day was rounded off with an exceptional roast duck dinner and beautiful smiles from the pretty waitress. I've never specialised in being a whinging pom. However, I must confess that later in bed my mind was filled with grouchy thoughts. I became aware of how the day could have been vastly improved by a few simple additions. Footbridges across the rail track and the motorway would have removed danger and relieved anxiety. Also, a splash of orange sauce would have enriched the duck wonderfully. During daylight hours, Ingleby Cross is an enclave of rural peace and tranquillity. After dark, when birdsong gives way to nocturnal rustling in the undergrowth, the heavy rumble of distant traffic reverberates in every nook and cranny. The all-pervading intrusiveness of the pulsating noise and the tremor of the bed made for an unexpected experience. I slept as soundly as I had during the years I'd worked aboard deep-sea cargo vessels or on offshore oil rigs, places where noise is constant, sharp and close, but through necessity goes unheeded. 